electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. (laughs) Hi, everybody. I am John Fort in for Kelly Evans. Here is what's ahead on The Exchange. A big surprise on the labor front, the July jobs report coming in much hotter than expected. So will the Fed take out the rate hike bazooka in September to tame inflation? A look at how aggressive the Fed could get, the potential fallout for the markets, and how to position yourself. Plus, consumers are spending big on experiences, helping Live Nation to a record quarter. The president and CFO joins us live with what he's seeing and whether that level of spending can be sustained. And the Fed's impact on housing. Mortgage lenders have been hit hard by rising rates. Now there could be a shakeout coming in the industry. The details are ahead, but we begin with the big story of the day, the July jobs report, and Steve Leisman. Steve? John, thanks. Yeah, job growth unexpectedly surging in July, and that pretty much counters calls the U.S. has slipped into recession, at least for now, and bolsters the case at the Fed for continued hefty rate hikes. Jeffrey's writing, forget recession. The market narrative should be shifting to stronger for longer. Total income from wages and salaries is set to accelerate. When inflation is slowing sharply, this will cause real wages, income spending, and GDP to accelerate sharply in the third quarter. The data suggests that a big part of the employment rebound is employers getting back to the level they were at before the pandemic. Take a look at some of these numbers. Here's where the jobs are. Education health, 122,000. It's a bit below where it was in February 2020, but we've had a lot of population growth in that period of time. Leisure and hospitality up 96,000. They're 1.1 million below February 2020. Construction still doing well, despite what's happening in the housing and mortgage markets. And local education up 28,000. There's some 300 thousand below where they were before the pandemic. Here are the numbers. I'm not going to read you all the numbers. Just know they're all well above some of the cases, double expectations, 528 uh, uh, jobs. We were looking for 250 um, and the revisions were in the positive way up 28,000. That's the important thing. Average hourly wages up a lot more than expected, up 0.5%. So uh, Powell has said, the Fed Chair Jay Powell has said pretty consistently that uh, he believes the job market could withstand sharp rate increases. And this report helps the case. The only question is whether the job market is improving. It's too resilient to the Fed's medicine and whether that means more and heavier doses of rate hikes are needed. John? Yeah, um, that is the question. Is good news good news? Is good news bad news? Steve Leisman, thank you. All right, Wall Street seemingly taking today's hot jobs report in stride. Stocks falling initially at the open with the Dow dropping more than 200 points and the Nasdaq down 1.5% at the lows. But the indexes are off those levels. Let's get to Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange for the latest. Bob? Yeah, no recession now. The concern is, you heard from Steve, maybe there might be one down the road if the Fed continues to be really aggressive. That's this topsy-turvy world of the stock market. Uh, So the key point here is for the S&P 500, the low print was the open. We were on the verge of breaking below 4,100. That was right at the open. And since then, we've held on pretty well, actually made a bit of a comeback. The Nasdaq is the weakest one, down about 1%. No surprise given the rally we've seen in tech stocks. What they're going for is value stocks today. So remember, strong economy kind of helps the idea that energy could hold up a little bit better. So energy stocks uh, and material names, Freeport Mac brand, which has been out of favor recently, doing well today. And some of these big energy names, uh, APA, Devon, Occidental, and Chevron, all on the upside. What else are they going for? Well, another value subset, or used to be largely, uh, were bank stocks. And when we see uh, 18 basis points, 19 basis points increase in the 10-year yield, uh, that'll get bank stocks going. So we see some nice moves up here in J.P. Morgan today. Uh, some of the big super regional banks like Fifth Third and Zions, Wells Fargo, all having a nice move to the upside. Tech's had an amazing run. And when you look at the fact that uh, it would not be surprising to see tech sell off a bit. These are pretty modest sell-offs. Apple uh, has been terrific recently. It moves up and doesn't move down much. 
Micron, NVIDIA, NVIDIA's up 20% in the last few weeks and still pretty modest decline here uh, for some of these big cap names. Uh, Tesla is affecting consumer discretionary separately. Of course, there was some news there. Elon was out talking about that. Some delays in that Cybertruck that everybody likes to follow uh, a little bit. Some, some particular stock news affecting that. So, John, I think what's going on here is the stock market is a discounting mechanism, and that's what people have a hard time understanding. The news today clearly indicates, well, highly unlikely we're in a recession right now, but as you heard from Steve, it's going to increase the chances the Fed are going to be even more aggressive down the road, and that increases the possibility of a recession later in the year or 2023. You get your head around this by just understanding the stock market is a discounting mechanism. It looks ahead six months, seven months, eight months, trying to figure out what's going on. And the immediate concern right now is that six to eight month period down the road. Back right. to you. Right. Not, not lowering interest rates. Not Boy, it, it's, it seems to be discounting something different every other day, though, Bob. Bob Pisani, thank you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, as we mentioned, today's jobs report raising expectations the Fed could get more aggressive through the end of the year. In fact, one of my next guests lifting his target range for the Fed funds rate by 25 basis points, projecting 50 point hikes in September and November and a 25 point raise in December. Joining me now is Michael Gapin, head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Global Research, along with Maria Shrin, uh, managing partner at Circle Wealth Management. Uh, welcome to you both. Maria, is, is bad news good news? Is good news bad news? How do, we, how do we digest this jobs report, which shows that the consumer of the economy should still be reasonably strong? I think this is good news is good news. Uh, that we went into this day thinking that bad news would be good news. And we've seen that the market has reacted actually quite well to a super strong number, because at the end of the day, we're going through a process of normalization of all the imbalances that had happened because of COVID and because of all the other issues that have been subsequent to that with Russia and China. So the fact is that the U.S. is a growth market and this jobs report is a good news job report. Uh, Michael, though, what does this mean uh, about the expectations, what we should expect for interest rate hikes and then the likelihood of a soft landing? This is proving a pretty uh, difficult economy to tame. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm a little more in the camp that this is a double-edged sword report where I completely agree that it, it sends a very strong signal about underlying momentum in the U.S. economy, and that is certainly coming from a rebalancing and reopening effect following the pandemic. I, I think strong data means the Fed has more work to do. And so, yes, I, whether that's a 75 basis point hike in September or maybe a series of 50 basis point hikes into to year end, I think this means, you know, current and existing Fed tightening hasn't slowed things down all that much. So they, they probably need to extend their effort and front load some of that. And we were getting, Michael, some chatter out of the Fed this week saying, hey, don't expect us to be all over the place, you know, hiking and then lowering, hiking. We're going to raise and then stay higher uh, to, to make sure that we've got inflation under control. That was before we got this jobs data. What kind of position does this put them in and what sort of investments should the folks at home be thinking about making based on that? Right. I think that the message this sends is don't expect a Fed pivot back to a more balanced reaction function anytime soon. The, the Fed certainly keyed in on reducing an inflation and restoring price stability. And in their mind, they have to at least take some of the edge off of the domestic economy and labor markets to, to do that. We'll see if that ends up being a soft landing or, or something worse. Um, but yes, I, I think this, the stronger the data is, the more the Fed's going to be inclined to lean against it. And they said they need clear and compelling evidence that inflation is on its way back to 2%. So I think a switch from hikes to cuts is, is premature. I think the Fed will likely be in a restricted policy stance for, for longer than the market is currently expecting. So, Maria, how are you putting money to work here? Uh, technology, uh, specifically cybersecurity and software, you say, healthcare also. I mean, we're still at this elevated level in equities versus where we were when the fear was, oh boy, the economy's running hot on its own, the Fed's got a lot of work to do. And then people started thinking, oh, the economy will self-cool, but now it doesn't look like the economy's self-cooling. So where is safe to put money right now? 
Well, you know, for thoughtful long-term investors like our clients, we think that these volatile moments provide excellent entry points. So valuations might still be elevated than they were a month ago, but they've come down significantly from the beginning of the year where everything, bonds, equities, were priced for perfection, no margin for error. Now the average stock is down 30% from their highs and valuations relative to 30-year historic averages are significantly better. So we are deploying cash carefully, but thoughtfully into the equity markets, rebalancing. Individuals can harvest losses so that they don't end up paying too much in taxes and go into sectors that are gonna be secularly well positioned cyber being one of them in our opinion, as well as others. Uh, what I would avoid is fixed income. I think uh, if you need to be in fixed income, you stay very, very short because you're getting paid most of the return in the very short inside of a year type of the curve. Um, but you avoid areas where with interest rates going higher, you could definitely get hurt. Michael, what about international? Well, the growth environment globally is, is much trickier than it is in, in the U.S. All evidence is pointing to very subdued, if not outright, recessions for, for other parts of, of the world. So here we're talking about your larger developed economies like Europe and the U.K. and growth coming out of China. Now, for the U.S., I would say be careful to extrapolate weak growth globally to mean weaker growth in the U.S. Our trade channel is smaller than it is in other economies. And the weaker growth is outside the U.S., the more it tends to support consumption through lower commodity and energy prices, as, as we've been seeing recently. So there's a bit of a paradox here. Sometimes the weaker it is outside the U.S., the better it is for the U.S. Interesting. So, Maria, we're also we just got through with the second week of a pretty busy earnings season where results were pretty strong, guides were mixed. What's the overall message you take away from that now that we can combine it with this unexpectedly strong jobs report? That this economy is good and that businesses that are smart in navigating all the imbalances that have been produced by COVID and all the issues that we've been dealing with over the past two years will do well. So earnings was a big uncertain that now is over. 75% of companies reported good numbers um, and CEOs gave good guidance. So we're actually taking a positive from those reports and they sustain valuations as well. Uh, we're going to hear from the president pretty soon, Maria. So what kind of uh, backdrop does this set? I mean, so many things have shifted, right? We had a situation where it didn't look like um, Congress was getting much done. Then all of a sudden there's this surge into the close of their session. Uh, jobs are, are in a different position. Should investors be thinking about what happens with midterms later this year as being a market moving uh, type event? Or is the economy and its issues looming so large that politics matter less? I think they both matter because what happens in the economy will come up uh, with politics. And so I think both matter. And I think that the government is trying to put some things that will be positive um, so that this election can be a good midterm election. Uh, Michael, if politics do matter, it, for what particular types of equities and where should investors position right now? Well, I think that in, in the moment, politics have, are mattering in the sense, but what is coming out of this is a balanced budget amendment that, not a balanced budget amendment, but a balanced, generally a balanced budget forecast, a deficit reduction bill of somewhere between 100 and, and 300 billion. So it's, it, would, it would be something that argues for medium term stability. My, so I don't pick sectors, I don't, you know, I don't really pick asset classes, but here's the point I would make. Well, here if is the, the president. The Hold on, Michael. Uh, let's hear what he's got to say. 528,000 jobs were added just last month to this country's employment. 528,000 jobs. We have now nearly doubled what we We're almost at 10 million jobs. Almost at 10 million jobs since I took office. That's the fastest job growth in history. Today, we also matched the lowest unemployment rate in America in the last 50 years, 3.5%. Yes, 3.5%. Today, there are more people working in America than before the pandemic began. In fact, there are more people working in America than any point in American history. You know, what we're also seeing is something that uh, just a few years ago, 
many experts said was literally impossible. The revitalization of American manufacturing. Since I took office, we've created 642,000 American manufacturing jobs in America. We've seen the biggest and the fastest job recovery in American manufacturing history since the 50s. And some people may have given up on American manufacturing, but the American people didn't, and I know I never did. That's why I made it, make it in America, that phrase, make it in America, the cornerstone of my economic plan. And today's report proves make it in America isn't just a slogan, it's my administration. It's a reality. I've also made it priority to bring down the federal deficit. After watching my predecessor every single year increase the debt, the federal deficit, every year for the four years he was in office, I said no more. The days of exploding federal deficits are over, and I've kept my word. Just, at, just take a look at the facts. The deficit is down a record of $1.7 trillion this year. That's right, $1.7 trillion with a T. And that's on top of $350 billion reduction in the deficit my first year in office. Now, I know people will hear today's extraordinary jobs report and say they don't see it. They don't feel it in their own lives. I know how hard it is. I know it's hard to feel good about job creation when you already have a job and you're dealing with rising prices, food and gas and so much more. I get it. I literally can remember sitting at my mom and dad's dining room table and watching them choose which bills they're going to pay this next that month because there wasn't enough money to pay all the bills. I get it. That's why I'm doing everything in my power to lower the cost for families. You know, we've seen some progress. Gas prices are coming down. They're down almost a dollar a gallon from where they were just a month ago. And, uh, you know, we're making progress. We now have more than 50 straight days of falling gas prices in this country. The price of the pump is now less than $3.99 a gallon in more than half of the gas stations in America. In fact, $3.79 a gallon is now the most common price paid at the pump in the country. $3.79. While well, we're not there yet, we're on the cusp of passing the most important step we can pass to take con help Congress to help us lower inflation, the Inflation Reduction Act. That bill will lower prescription drug costs by giving Medicare the power to negotiate for lower drug prices. Lower drug prices. That's something the American people have prom been promised for years, for decades. And we're on the verge of finally getting that done. The bill also keeps down health care insurance costs by keeping health care premiums for the, those on the Affordable Care Act down $2,400 a year. It'll make historic investments in clean energy, clean energy, security, the security of the country is at stake. We're going to save American families hundreds of dollars a year on paying their energy bills by allowing them to have money to invest by getting, allowing them to put in new windows and doors and solar panels and the like and get tax credits for that. Also going to restore some fairness to the tax code by imposing corporate minimum tax of 15% on billion-dollar companies. That will put an end to what we've seen in recent years, where 55 of the largest companies in America, the Fortune 500, paid zero federal taxes on income over $40 billion combined in profit. This bill is going to reduce the deficit by another $300 billion. And one more point. This bill will not, let me repeat this, this bill will not, will not raise taxes on anybody making less than $400,000 a year. When it comes to the benefits of this bill, you don't have to take my word for it. Nearly 130 economists, seven Nobel laureates in, in, in the economy, on the economists, and the economics, I should say, former secretaries of Treasury, Federal Reserve, former Federal Reserve Vice Chair, Former director of the Congressional Budget Office wrote that this bill will, quote, combined, they wrote, signed, will, quote, fight inflation and lower costs for American families while setting the stage for strong, stable, and broadly shared long-term economic growth. In short, 
This bill is a game changer for working families in our economy. I look forward to the Senate taking up this legislation and passing it as soon as possible. You know, I know most families are focused on just putting three meals on the table, taking care of their kids and paying their bills. Helping you do that is my job. That's a president's job as well. I have one more job, which is not only to focus on getting America through the economic challenge we're facing, but to look to the future, to make sure we're building an economy that, that meets the needs of American families to be able to succeed and for America to win the future. When you step back, today's jobs report is part of a broader story. For decades, the American economy has been struggling even before the pandemic. Middle-class Americans were working harder, but they were falling further behind. All the rewards of the economy seem to be going to those at the very top. When I came to office, I was determined to change that. I ran for president saying I was going to restore the backbone of America, the middle class, and grow the economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not from the top down. Because when the middle class does well, everybody does well. Everybody, the wealthy do very well, and the poor have a way up. My economic plan rests on five pillars. Get America back to work at a record pace. All Americans, all Americans, leaving no one behind. And we're doing just that. In the process, for the first time in a long time, workers are being empowered. Instead of workers begging employers for work, we're seeing employers have to compete for American workers. And we're seeing the resurgence of working worker organizations and unionization. When I, where I come from, that's a good thing. And it's long overdue. Two, we're literally rebuilding this nation. Our roads, our bridges, our ports, our airports, clean water, high-speed internet for all Americans. For too long, America has failed to invest in itself. We changed that this year with the biggest investment in America since Eisenhower's interstate highway system. We're now committing to rebuild America, not just for tomorrow, but for the next decade. And that includes not only investments in things like roads and bridges, but investments in research and development, the next generation technologies from artificial intelligence to quantum computing to semiconductors. They're all going to remake the world. As I said earlier, we're going to build in America, build it here in America. Let me be clear. We're going to invest it in America. We're going to make it in America. We're going to win the economic competition of the 21st century in America. Three, give working people in the middle class a fighting chance. More than just a little breathing room, a real chance to get ahead by making their everyday things more affordable and accessible, like health care, prescription drug costs, energy, childcare, education, housing, and so much more. Because when we lower those costs of all the necessary things, we improve their standard of living. Four, make our economy more competitive and less concentrated. When too few companies dominate a market, it, that reduces com competition, drives up the costs for American consumers. That's been going on for too long. We need to give small business and entrepreneurs more opportunities and consumers more choices at, the affor at affordable prices. The fifth thing, five, the fifth pillar, we're going to reward work, not just wealth in America, so that everyone pays their fair share in taxes. I'm a capitalist. I'm not trying to punish anybody, but I'm saying everyone, everyone should pay their fair share, just their fair share. America is a nation that was built on work. We can never lose sight of that. That's why the strength and pace of our job recovery is so important. In the past, it's taken years for Americans to recover from an economic crisis that we inherited. And when that's happened, millions of people suffered for years and years just trying to get back to where they were before, just trying to get back on their feet. Well, that didn't happen this time. You know, my dad used to say, that a job is about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about your place in the community. It's about being able to look your child in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay, and mean it. That's the economy I'm determined to build today. That's the economy I'm looking at.
Now, part of changing the way things have been done in the past is by restoring the faith of the American people in their government. Today, I'm going to be signing very shortly two bipartisan bills, bipartisan bills, that began to restore that faith. The key driver of economic recovery is the resurgence of American small business. Small business hires many people as the, as the major corporations. We just learned last week that small businesses with less than 50 employees created nearly 3 million jobs in 2021. 3 million. That's the most ever in a single year. And more Americans applied to start new businesses than ever before in our history. And part of our plan is making sure that when we commit funds to help American small business, it actually goes to those small businesses they're supposed to go to. We know that the last administration, that's not what happened. Too much of small business relief funding, which was passed by the Congress, ended up in the hands of those who either didn't need it or criminal syndicates who outright stole the money. Not only did the Trump administration let the biggest businesses with the teams of lawyers and accountants. That is President Biden addressing today's strong jobs report and the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's bring in our Kayla Tausche. Kayla, it seems like he's trying to use this moment to reshape the narrative a bit with his approval ratings where they are, talking about 10 million jobs created since he took office, talking about small business creating jobs, acknowledging inflation. Uh, How much has this strong jobs report and some of the legislative looks like wins that are happening uh, on Capitol Hill. How much is that changing the narrative? Well, John, it certainly adds some fuel to the White House and the Treasury Department's arguments that the labor market is simply too strong to declare the U.S. in a recession, despite the fact that last week we saw two straight quarters of an, a shrinking economy in this country. There certainly have been mixed signals on what the economy is telling us. But President Biden here is taking a victory lap after a rare string of domestic wins, ranging from the economy showing that uh, job losses from the pandemic have been completely erased, that gas prices are now back where they were since before the invasion of Ukraine, and some support coalescing uh, for critical pieces of Democrats' legislation, not least of which the Inflation Reduction Act, which could see uh, a vote later on this weekend. Uh, But it comes against the backdrop, as I mentioned, John, of a shrinking economy of inflation that remains incredibly high. And now economists suggesting that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates by 75 basis points again in September uh, because the economy can handle stuff like that. That means it's going to become more expensive for consumers to borrow. And voters increasingly say, that the economy is their number one issue come November. And while there were some positive signs for Democrats in the primary results this week, notably in Kansas, they are still focused on the economy, number one, first and foremost, and what it can deliver for voters in the next few months, John. And Kayla, this economy feels very different if you're rich versus if you're poor, right? These numbers that come out today are exciting if you're thinking, oh, I own some equities, you know, uh, I already own a home and I'm not looking to buy another one. Maybe maybe things aren't so bad. Maybe Q4 uh, is going to hold up just fine. But if you're on the poorer end of the spectrum, gas might have come down, but it's still expensive and so are a lot of other things. That, that's absolutely right, John. And it's one of the areas where the White House has faced the most criticism. You may remember that President Biden on the campaign trail was adamant that he would not raise taxes on Americans making less than $400,000 a year. But then you've had this inflation that's been skyrocketing. And there are a lot of uh, critics who have been arguing, well, it doesn't matter if you raise taxes on people below that income threshold because their costs are going up regardless, perhaps in an even bigger way than they would have if their taxes had gone up. So that is why the White House is focused on inflation. But there are questions about whether there's anything at this point they can do. The Fed, of course, is trying to get ahead of the curve at this point. uh, But there are still questions of of whether it's too little, too late, John. Yeah. Interesting and important to see the political ramifications uh, of what's happening in the economy and and vice versa. Kayla Tausche, thank you. Higher prices not stopping consumers from spending on experiences, helping Live Nation to a beat on the top and bottom lines. The CEO saying that despite inflationary pressures, consumers are spending more on experiences, driving the business to record levels. In fact, the company saw its strongest quarterly attendance figures ever, with attendance 20% higher than pre-pandemic levels. The stock not reacting much to the news, though. Lower on the session, down more than 19% 
this year. Joining me now in a CNBC exclusive, Joe Burke told the president and chief financial officer of Live Nation. Joe, welcome. Uh, Got to start with um, th this move toward experiences that we're seeing, but also the difference in this economy between people who got a lot of money and people who don't. There, there's this Bruce Springsteen you know, ticket issue, $5,000 tickets. I know most of the tickets aren't $5,000, but it's just such an illustration, right, of how demand remains strong among people with a lot of money and, uh, and not so much with people who don't. Well, thanks for having me on. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. We've seen demand really stay strong top to bottom. Uh, across all of our business, we're seeing the fans are buying tickets. They're buying those expensive tickets if they want to sit in the front row. They're also buying the tickets just to get in and see the show. Uh, we have an average entry price ticket of $33 globally in, in the second quarter, which is up only 5% from 2019. And despite the headlines, if you look at all the tickets we've sold, the pricing is up about 10% from 2019, which remains below what the inflation has been in the US over that same period. So yes, a few of those tickets in the front rows get the headlines, but the reality is this is really an affordable event for the vast majority of people. And we're seeing that in the results. They're coming to the shows, they're sitting on the, the lawns at the amphitheater, and they're just there to have a good time. Joe, in so many different industries, we're seeing this uh, kind of post-thick of the pandemic spike and then a cooling of that. If you look at e-commerce, we've seen it, uh, a number of different stocks. What are you seeing when it comes to live events and the demand for those? The post-COVID demand to just yeah. get out, have an experience, being around people was so huge. But what are your expectations for 23? Does it continue yeah. off of a high base or does it cool? Yeah, I think one of the things that's different about concerts and these live experiences, we've been growing from 2010 to 2019. We were growing double digits. So this is not an aberration to be growing at this point. It was an aberration to have lost some of that growth uh, trajectory that we were on. And now we've gone back to it. As we look at 23, we continue to feel very good. A few things. First of all, the percentage GDP being spent on experiences versus goods has not yet fully returned to the 2019 levels. So we have some strong tailwinds there. Secondly, as we look at our pipeline of artists that are looking to tour next year, it's never been stronger. Sitting here six months out, we've got a tremendous lineup that we'll be putting on sale as we get into the fall. And I think we'll see another great year in 2023. Uh, coming up soon, you got Bad Bunny, Lizzo, Post Malone. Tell me about how the operations of the business though have changed or not over the past couple of years. There was a lot of time to work on uh, technology, on contactless, maybe on some things that increase the, the, the wallet spend while people are, are within the event. Uh, is that happening? Is that paying off right now? No, absolutely. We're seeing that a lot of what is happening uh, at our amphitheaters, at our festivals, is actually people looking for what's the better experience. How do I not just have the usual show up at the show, but where's the differentiated whether it's a VIP club or it's a fast lane, it's VIP parking. Uh, how, do I, how do I have even a higher experience? And we spent a lot of the time over the past few years really thinking through what are all the use cases? What are all the segments of the population? What do they want differently? And how do we make sure we can deliver that as they come out of the pandemic and get back to shows? Have you figured out finally how to monetize that Instagram-driven FOMO. I mean, the, people are so focused on not just being there, but showing everybody else who isn't there, hey, look, I'm here. How is that working for you? Well, it's working great for us. You're absolutely right. That is part of why people get out to the experiences. And again, having differentiated experiences. It's great to show you're in the crowd. It's even better to show when you're at the front of the rail or you're in the club and you've got that differentiated experience. All right. Joe Berktold of Live Nation. Thank you. Thank you. Sticking with experiences, consumers continuing to spend on travel as well. That's a common theme. We've been hearing this earnings season from the major players in the travel industry. Marriott, Avis, Airbnb, TripAdvisor, all seeing strong demand. But finding enough workers to keep up with that demand, that's a challenge. Kate Rogers has more in today's Help Wanted. Kate? 
Hey, John, well, even with today's job gains in leisure and hospitality, we're still more than one million below where the industry was pre-pandemic. That's hitting hotel operators with some now limiting rooms because they just can't service them. Just a couple of weeks ago, 97% of hoteliers said they had openings. 49% they had said they had severe staffing shortages, shortages that were impacting operations. And so about half the hotels are being impacted in a way that's hitting their operations. At Eat, Drink, Sleep on Catalina Island in California, the staff are doing more with less to ensure that visitors still have an enjoyable experience. Some restaurants on the property are now open just five days a week, and they're also limiting hotel cleaning during stays. We limit the number of items on the menu. That helps in the back of the house. And then, you know, people are getting used to not a full service every day. We're not, you know, if someone's staying with us for three days, um, we're doing limited cleanings be between each night, and then we do a full service on checkout and check in. Now, Miller says inflation has caused sticker shock. The brand, though, maintains value at its property is there, it, as does demand, John. Guests are getting used to prices and hotels just, frankly, doing a little bit more with less because everyone's just so excited to be able to go on vacation, right, after two years of, you know, various lockdowns in the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, Kate Rogers, thank you. I wonder which happens first. Uh, consumers getting tired of not getting everything that they think they should be paying for or the prices actually coming down. Uh, Kate Rogers, once again. Uh, stocks, meanwhile, initially dropping on the strong jobs numbers, but the Dow is now up ever so slightly while the S&P and NASDAQ have slight losses. Uh, yields have also moved higher as investors expect a more hawkish Fed. And up next, the margin play, the valuation play, and the dividend play, plus one name to avoid as yields move higher. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Today's red-hot jobs numbers got the market expecting a more hawkish Fed through at least the end of the year. So, how should you position? Joining us now is CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez. She is chief market strategy, uh, strategist at Lido Advisors as three rate-sensitive buys and one name to bail on today. Gina? First up, Bank of America. Shares are up 8% in the past month, but still about 30% off their highs. This one you're calling your margin play. Why? So this, this is really one where Bank of America has a very, very solid deposit base. And it's a depositor base that doesn't leave the bank if interest rates go up elsewhere. Um, so they've managed to lock down that depositor rate at a good cost, and they have a good consumer lending unit. And so they're able, as rates rise, to keep charging more and more on those loans so their net interest margins tend to expand during interest rate rises. And we've seen it um, historically with Bank of America, and we're seeing it now. So we think that Bank of America is one of those plays that you just simply make more money um, when, the, uh, when interest rates are rising. All right. And they are rising for sure. Your next buy is Morgan Stanley. Shares are up 12% in the past month. This is your valuation play. You like the recurring revenue stream. The valuation you say is attractive, trading at just 12 times earnings right now? Yeah, absolutely. This is a this is a cheap stock relative to the rest of the S&P. Um, this is one that can participate uh, to some degree in that net interest margin play, but its real story is the fact that it has tremendous recurring revenues through the wealth management uh, space, where they're collecting a regular fee uh, for wealth management services, um, and through their investment uh, uh, book as well. 
Uh, and so those two units are doing very well. They're very profitable, stable. And we think that, the, quite frankly, the valuation is very cheap right now um, relative to uh, what you get as a stock. So we think that, that this is going to be able to weather the interest rate hike because its valuation just isn't that high. Okay. Okay. And the final buy, also a financial company, T. Rowe Price. It is on pace for its third straight positive week, still 40% off its highs, though. This is your dividend play. Is it a dividend yield play being so far off the highs? Well, yeah, this is actually a growing dividend play. I mean, Lido Advisors owns it in its dividend growth portfolio. And this is a, a story of a company that is not only growing its dividend, but its dividend payout ratio is like 53%, which is to say that it is more than covering uh, that dividend with earnings. And so um, that solid, uh, in, you know, that solid fee, the, the fee that they get for managing um, investments is, you know, they're turning around and they're giving that back to their investors. And when interest rates are rising, cash is king. You want to get close to your cash. Dividends is a great way to, to get cash out of your portfolio without having to sell uh, anything in your portfolio. So we just really like the dividend growth story, uh, along with the fact that the underlying business is good business. All right. Three financial names are the buys. Here's one to bail on. Also a financial name, Robinhood, on pace for its best week since March, up about 14% after announcing it is trimming its workforce by nearly 23%. It is the firm's second round of job cuts this year. It missed street estimates, posted declines in both users and assets under custody. Hood is more than 80% off of its highs. Why isn't it cheap here? Isn't this supposed to be disrupting those other names you're saying to buy? Well, the problem with Robinhood is that it hasn't figured out, you know, its its uh, profitability yet, and they just got hit with a thirty million dollar uh, know your customer kind of uh, uh, you know play uh, uh, fine, um, and so that sort of uh, anti money laundering uh, space is not a space where you want to be running fast and loose. Robinhood was running fast and loose, and they got caught. In fact, their their examination really came back with a lot of very questionable. Uh, uh, kind of elements of their business model. And so if they can't get their business model, they are operating in a regulated space. If they can't get their regulation house in order, then all of the profits that they're going to make are going to end up getting spit back out in the form of fines. And so even though they are trying to get profitability under control, we think it's in response to those fines and not necessarily, you know, the, the sort of right direction. We think this is dead money until it really has its business model in order. Fast and Loose had a good year in 2021, but not so much in 2022, you're saying. Gina Sanchez, thank you. Coming up, this stock soaring today and on pace for its best week in more than two years, but it's still down big for the year. The name and what's moving it higher next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now continuing to pair losses. The Dow's low was down 237 points. High was up 22. Well, actually, it's up 35 points right now. Here's the mystery chart we teased before this break. DraftKings is soaring on a better-than-expected revenue and adjusted uh, earnings report for its latest quarter. The company also raising its full-year revenue forecast. That stock is up 42% in the past month but still down 32% year to date. Coming up, inflation hitting both companies and consumers, but that could prove to be a boon for the companies Morgan Stanley calls deflation enablers. We're gonna to speak to the CEO of Samsara, which was named in that Morgan Stanley note about bringing down rising costs. Next. Exchange. Morgan Stanley is out with a list of deflation enablers, naming logistics tech company Samsara as one of the companies that's lowering costs for customers 
and enhancing productivity through automation. Despite the nod, the stock is down more than 40% this year. But like much of tech, it's had a strong month, up nearly 40% since the beginning of July. Let's bring in Sanjit Biswas, the CEO of Samsara. Sanjit, good to see you. So especially on the heels of this strong jobs report, it just shows how much tightness there is in the supply chain and particularly where labor is concerned. How has that affected demand for what you offer? Hey, John. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on. We are definitely seeing this tightness in the market that you mentioned when it comes to labor. Our customers operate in supply chain, but also construction, field services, and a bunch of these other physical operations industries. And as I think we saw in the jobs report this morning, these industries are going strong. They're hiring a lot of people, and that's causing a lot of tightness in that labor market. So that cost is uh, significant. On the other hand, they're investing in technology that's making them more efficient. So if you can find a way to save yourselves 10% of your time by eliminating paperwork, moving to digital workflows, moving to apps, it's like being able to hire 10% more people without having to spend as much. So that's the deflationary trend that we see that's enabled by technology. And part of what you're doing, right, is putting sensors on things like on trucks to, uh, so that people can understand how stuff is moving, where it's moving, how to be more efficient with it. How do you see behavior changing in this environment where gas is so expensive and labor so hard to come by? So gas prices are still high. I think they've come down a little bit over the last few months, uh, but we're still talking about prices that are $5 plus for diesel, four plus for regular, which is $1.50 higher than where it was last year. So what we're seeing customers do is get smarter about their operations. They're using the sensors, the real-time GPS information, their customer information to replan their routes and figure out, could we maybe visit customers in a different order? Could we find a different way to service them? And that is leading to some efficiency gains as well. So I think our customers, they've been operating for you know, 100 plus years in many cases, they're very resilient and they're very creative. So they're finding new ways to use this technology to be smarter about their day-to-day -day decisions. I keep hearing from a lot of technology companies about longer cycles and actually getting deals done and the need to be able to show quick ROI on technology spend. I would think that maybe you'd be in that category of being able to show that ROI, but as capital itself gets more expensive, are customers able to spend at that same kind of rate? Is it taking longer to close those deals? So ROI has always been part of the picture for customers and operations. These are not the highest margin businesses, so they only invest in technology when it truly makes sense for them and it's a, it's a clear win. And we've had that trend since really the beginning of the company. What we're seeing are these customers trying to find creative ways to free up cash. Um, so just to give you a specific example, Trailers are very hard to come by right now. This is a, an asset not a lot of people thought about until recently with the supply chain crunch. So we're seeing our customers use the GPS trackers to figure out which trailers are in use, which ones aren't, and then maybe sell off the assets they're not using. So it's a way to raise cash for their businesses and reinvest it in the areas that they need to. What about your own supply chain for the hardware you need to, to serve these customers? You know, it's got to be chips uh, to, to go into these sensors so the software can do its work. Are you mm -hmm. constrained there, and what's the outlook? So this has been something we've had to get creative on for the last two and a half years now. Just ever since the pandemic began, we started seeing disruptions in our supply chain. But our engineering teams did a fantastic job. They basically redesigned the products so we could figure out which chips were available. We rewrote our software, and the net result is our customers have been able to get their hands on our product and get enabled onto the platform. So no big disruptions for us. A lot of work behind the scenes to continue serving our customers, but I think that's the kind of agility that growing companies need to have. Absolutely, that's the same kind of agility that Tesla was able to use and get ahead of other automakers. Sanjit Biswas of Samsara, thank you. Thanks, John. Okay, still ahead, Alexa, Ring, and now Roomba. We're gonna get details on the latest Amazon push into home robots next. Amazon taking another step into consumer robotics, announcing a deal to buy Roomba maker iRobot. Steve Kovac joins me now with the details and to talk about what's behind the acquisition. Steve? Yeah, John. So Amazon's buying iRobot for $1.7 billion in cash. Now, interest in robotics for Amazon has been going back a full decade when it bought Kiva 
for $775 million. Those are those little robots that scoot around the warehouse, moving product all around so people can pack and ship them. Last year, uh, releasing a robot called Astro, that was a $1,500 robot that can patrol your home and bring you snacks and send you alerts. It's like Alexa on wheels, basically. But Astro is pretty poorly reviewed, and there's limited availability. It's an invite-only product. But buying iRobot, John, gives Amazon a firmer foothold in the smart home where it already dominates in market share thanks to the, all those Echo speakers and the Alexa ecosystem that's been built around them from third parties. Amazon also bought another smart home company, Ring, back in 2018 for a billion dollars. But still, regulatory approval could be tough, especially if the FTC reviews this deal. FTC Chair Lena Khan has said she's against deals like this, suing to block Meta from buying a virtual reality fitness company just a couple weeks ago. And you can see her making a similar case here, John. Yeah, what's tough, though, I I spoke with uh, Jamie Seminoff from Ring and Nick Weaver from Eero, both of which were purchased by Amazon this spring. And part of the reason why they wanted to do it is because of Amazon's scale and the difficulty in building up enough capital to ramp new products. So if you constrain the ability of Amazon to buy these things, maybe some of these things go away. Right, and iRobot is struggling right now. Revenue, they reported their second quarter earnings results. The revenue is down 30% from a year ago, so people aren't staying inside and vacuuming their homes anymore. They're getting out and about in the real world. So Amazon clearly saw they could get this company at a discount. And again, like you said, they have that capital to provide and supercharge any future products they may be working on. It's going to be a really interesting test of how how much this regulation has teeth because I think it's hard to argue Amazon's got a monopoly in robots. Right. They do have a, you know, big market share in the smart home, but consumer robots is barely a market, just like virtual reality with this meta case is barely a market right now. So it's kind of hard to make for regulators to make the argument that they're wiping out competitors to hold on to their market share because the market share is not really there, John. I can't wait to see how they do with these flying robots they want in the home. <laughs> yeah, the, the drones that are supposed to, you know, shoot video of your house and make you feel more secure. You can buy one now. Oh, well, we'll see. Steve, thank you. Thanks, John. And that's going to do it for the exchange with the Dow still barely in positive territory. Major indices off the lows. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 